You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Well, Eric, tell everybody good evening. It's nice to be here. Uh, since this is my first class at Temple Beth El, uh, and also because I forgot to do so on Shabbat, though I wanted to, um, I thought it would be appropriate to uh, recite the Shehechianu together. Um, so if you know the words, I invite you to join along. Um, if you don't, um, um, you can just recite Amen at the end, and that's as if you had said the blessing uh, yourself. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shehechianu V'Kiyamanu V'Kiyamanu Lazman Hazeh Amen. Uh, which means you are bountiful. Holy One, our God, Majesty of space and time, who has kept us alive and has sustained us and has brought us to this moment. Um, I want to do a couple things before I begin. First, uh, to thank um, uh, all the organizers of uh, the event, of course, the office staff for helping put it together, to uh, Ben Lewis for all of your tireless uh, work as president and to help pro- promote the session and organize it, uh, to Gary Goldberg, our adult uh, education Chair um, and uh, and his wife Debbie uh, for uh, all your work in coordinating and I believe sponsoring the uh, snacks tonight. So thank you. That's really important. Um, and the synagogue I went to in Los Angeles, Ikar, they called when you sponsored snacks or kiddish, they called it nosherizing. So thank you for na- thank you for nosherizing. Thank you for nosherizing tonight's event. Um, and who else? Uh, I don't mean to embarrass anybody. Who else uh, helped up? Um, Organize the planning of uh, either tonight's event or the series. Laura, I saw you back in the kitchen there. Just dumping things in the bowl. Wendy Solomon for uh, uh, for your leadership and and uh, your help in organizing. Thank you very much. Um, and I also just uh, one other thing want to uh, introduce a special guest that we have with us tonight. My mother, uh, Randy Farrow, who is here tonight. Yes. Um, so any problem you have with me, I invite you to direct it to her. <laughs> She's, she'll, she'll echo them, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. So this class series is called Six Spectacular Scriptures, and what I envisioned us doing um, is looking at six texts from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Bible, that um, I find to be uh, personally meaningful and, uh, and and deep and insightful and challenging, um, things that uh, I've constantly turned to for study and reflection and uh, sometimes texts that have you know, really shaped my life um, and have led me uh, to where I am today. Um, Five of the six texts that we're going to look at are texts from the Torah. So in the in the Tanakh, which is the um, Hebrew Bible, there are three sections. Torah is the first five books. Nevi'im, uh, which means the prophets, um, is uh, the next uh, uh, 15 to 20 books, depending on how you count them. Um, and what's that? Oh, sorry. Um, and uh, uh, the third section is Ketuvim, the uh, hagiographer, the other writings. Um, which has psalms and proverbs and, and things like that. Um, so five of the six are coming from Torah. One of the, the last of the six is coming from uh, Ketuvim, from the book of Psalms. 
um, and why I didn't include anything from the book of, uh, from the section of prophets or other places in uh, uh, Ketuvim is because I liked the alliteration of six. I had six weeks to choose from. I needed to choose six, six texts, and these were the first six that came to mind. So there's really no rhyme or reason, but uh, I hope to be here for a good long while, so in the course of time, you'll be hopefully exposed to every single text that I ever uh, enjoyed or loved. <laughs> Okay, but the first one we're going to talk about is really a doozy, and I think that uh, may be uh, the most uh, primary, most essential uh, of uh, all of the texts that we're going to look at, because within it, I think, is contained the essence of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a Jew, and how, as a Jew, we're called to relate to God, to other people, and to the world around us. But it's a text that, I have to say, Jews don't usually study. Um, and if they do, they study in a very cursory way. So if I were to open it up, and I, and I don't want to at the moment because we started a little bit late, if I were to open up a question of what do you know about the first chapter of Genesis, uh, my guess is that you would uh, talk about uh, God creating the world, the world being created in uh, six days, God resting on the Sabbath, the creation of human beings. But my guess also is, um, in terms of the detail, a close study of it, what it actually it's saying versus what our impressions are of what it says, um, my guess is actually there might be some disagreement or some confusion um, or some lack of knowledge in the room about that. And I know it's true for me. I grew up uh, going to a uh, Jewish day school. I went to a modern Orthodox day school in Atlanta, the Greenfield Hebrew Academy. Um, and when we started studying Chumash, when we started studying Torah, we started with Leviticus. We started with Vayikra. Um, and there was never a year that I can remember in kindergarten through eighth grade that we actually studied uh, in depth the book of Genesis, um, and in, in particular the opening chapter of Genesis, in the way that we studied Leviticus, in the way that we studied Exodus, in the way that we studied Numbers. Um, there are, I think, reasons for that. One reason is um, a uh, kind of a practical one. Um, so Judaism has historically been a very um, uh, practice and legally oriented tradition. And there are, strictly speaking, not really any laws in the book of Genesis. The first mitzvah in the Torah is actually in this passage that we're going to look at. Uh, but it's not the first mitzvah that is directed specifically at the Jewish people. It's directed to all of humanity. Um, and then there's uh, uh, only one other mitzvah uh, in the book of Genesis, which is uh, the ruling against eating the sciatic nerve, um, which is a part of an animal's hindquarters that we're not allowed to eat. But uh, if you, depending on how you interpret the Bible, interpret the Torah, uh, you might say, and some of the rabbis do, that that was just kind of stuck in the book of Genesis because it contextually made sense there, um, but isn't really a law that was given at the time of the book of Genesis. Um, so most Jews don't study the opening chapters of Genesis, in part for that reason, because there's not uh, a practical application to it. I actually disagree with that. I think that there are deeply practical applications to it. We'll talk about that. The second is um, uh, some uh, somewhat modern issue with Genesis, um, which is that uh, we moderns know that the world was not created in six days. Um, and we moderns further know that uh, the human being, uh, the first human being, didn't, uh, didn't 
get fashioned out of uh, clay, didn't fall out of the sky, didn't appear out of nothingness, um, was formed through millions of years of biological evolution. And all other species on the planet were formed through millions of years of biological evolution. Um, there are, of course, those uh, in the world who dispute that fact. Um, most Jews don't, even Orthodox Jews don't dispute those scientific claims, those scientific facts. There are some Jews who try to reconcile the biblical text with those scientific claims and those scientific facts. But by doing so, they really um, jump through hoops and jump through hurdles to try in, in one way or the other to get them to match. But what most Jews do is separate those spheres. They don't have them really talk to each other. So Genesis is Genesis, and, uh, and science is science. And I'll study Genesis insofar as it's my tradition, but doesn't really have any practical applications. But it's a nice story, and it's why we have Shabbos. Um, but I will also take my uh, antibiotics. Thank you very much. Right? That's how most Jews relate to it. Um, I advocate a different approach, which is why I think it's really important to study Genesis, because I don't think that the Torah uh, was trying to write science. I don't think that the Torah was actually trying to explain how the world came to be. Um, and I don't think that the Torah was writing history, at least not in the sense that we use the term history, uh, in the sense of a uh, linear factual representation of what happened in the past. Um, I don't think that's what the authors of the Torah were doing. I think that the authors of the Torah were trying to answer um, big questions about what it means to be a human being, uh, how are we supposed to relate to the world, um, what is the nature of God, what's the nature of the cosmos, and they told it through um, story, they told it through metaphor, and you can't get more fundamental than a question of, um, what, who are we and what are we supposed to be doing here, then starting with, well, where did we come from in the first place? They weren't necessarily interested in, did this actually happen like this? If you were to ask the authors of this text the quest, that question, they would look at you like you were from Mars. That wasn't what they were concerned about. What they were concerned about was, what is the meaning we're trying to convey for people's lives through this narrative device? That's what I think. Okay? You can contest that. I'm happy to have us contest that and happy to have us have a conversation. But that's just where I want to begin tonight. But I do want to point out, um, if you look at the top of the page, um, some of the uh, voices in our tradition that uh, mitigate, just so we have them aired out in front of all of us, that mitigate against studying the text that we're about to study together. So in the Mishnah, um, the central work of rabbinic Judaism, second century Palestine, uh, the, uh, the, the tractate Chagiga, um, which deals with um, some sacrificial issues, but then gets into some more esoteric stuff, says the following, anyone who looks into four things, it would be better for him or her to have never been brought into this world. What is above, what is below, what was before, and what is after. Now, it's a little bit opaque, that text, but basically what it's saying is, it's better for you never to have been born than to study Genesis. <laughs> That's basically what it's saying, okay? So if that scares anybody here, you, uh, there, there are exit signs on either side of the room. Okay, the second thing, if you look at the second page that, uh, that I have, text number, uh, text number two, which is Rashi's commentary on Genesis, we're going to come back to this text as well, but... Um, just to show what he says, it was not necessary to begin the Torah except from the passage from Exodus, this month is to you, which is uh, 
um, actually late in the book of Exodus, after the stories about Moses and the burning bush, Rashi's saying they shouldn't have even begun the book, the, story, the Torah there. They should have begun the, the, the Torah with the Exodus from Egypt. Forget about Moses. Forget about the plagues. Half of Dainu would be gone, right? We should start with the Torah with the first commandment, which is the commandment to consecrate the month of Nisan, which is the month that Passover is in, um, and uh, which is the first commandment that the Israelites were commanded. And then he goes on to say, so if that's what the Torah should have started with, why did the Torah start with uh, the, um, uh, the book of Genesis? And, and we'll get there in a second. So, um, so we do have these voices in our tradition that basically say um, a nice Jewish boy or girl shouldn't really be studying these texts. <laughs> so we're going to study it anyway. Okay. Questions so far? Okay. Um, I also brought a little bit of show and tell before we look at the actual text, which if you look at uh, the, the um, source sheet that I brought, um, you'll see um, these texts in one way or the other referenced on there because they were very influential in my thinking. Perhaps the most influential uh, in my thinking about the book of Genesis is my uh, teacher and mentor, Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson, who is the dean of my rabbinical school in Los Angeles, the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies. And he recently wrote this book called God of Becoming and Relationship, which is an excellent book um, talking about a, a different way of thinking about Judaism and God um, called Process Theology, um, which is a... a, 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 a philosophical school that was started in the uh, um, early 20th century by um, a mathematician turned philosopher at Harvard uh, named Alfred North Whitehead. Um, and uh, Rabbi Artson is one of the first people to kind of systematically adapt um, that approach to philosophy in a Jewish lens. Um, and in doing so, I think, um, opens up Jewish texts in ways that... Uh, um, Many of us have uh, been taught not to see them, but in actuality are really what they're saying, um, and to be honest about what our texts are saying, um, and uh, to think about God, uh, to open ourselves to be able to think about God in a way that um, if I were to push many of us, my guess is most of us actually do think about God. So um, it's a really great book and, and very accessible for, for anybody's level. Um, the second is um, Seek My Face by uh, Rabbi Arthur Green. Um, who is a, a close family friend of my wife's, but that's uh, not why I'm recommending the book. I'm recommending the book because it's a, um, a really excellent um, uh, mystical and philosophical uh, approach to God, also, I think, very um, accessible and very good. Uh, the third book is uh, not specifically Jewish. Um, it's a, a Protestant theologian named Catherine Keller, who, like Rabbi Artson, is a, a process theologian, although does so in uh, um, the Christian side of things, um, and this book is called On the Mystery. She also has another book called Face of the Deep, um, which is even more dense and difficult than this one is, although this one's a little bit dense and difficult too, um, uh, although she has um, great use of language. So we'll see in the Hebrew, um, there is a uh, word uh, in the Hebrew in the first uh, chapter of Genesis, tehom, which means the deep. It's a, the, you know, the dark place of uh, primordial creation. Um, and uh, she says that we've ignored that passage, which I think is true. We'll look at that in a second. Uh, and she says the reason we've ignored the, the pa that passage is to homophobia. 
Um, right, so uh, we're afraid. We're afraid of the darkness. We're afraid of uh, chaos. Okay, so um, anyway, Catherine Keller is great, and the other book is the uh, Bible. Okay, which I also commend to you. That's good. Um, okay, so here's I think the best way for us to do this because there's a lot of text um, is for me to kind of just uh, uh, roll through it and pause as I uh, as there are things that I want to uh, uh, call to our attention. Um, and for you to interrupt me if there are questions or comments that you have, and you're welcome to do so. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll leave some time at the end for conversation, okay? Okay. Um, so we're going to do this uh, primarily in English with, uh, with reference back to the Hebrew text as, as needed, just uh, in the interest of time, because I, I really have a whole chapter and a little bit uh, here for us. Okay, so the first thing, when God began to create, you guys see where I am? When God began to create heaven and earth, the earth being unformed and void with darkness over the surface of the deep and a wind from God sweeping over the water, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, a first day. Was there anything surprising about that passage to you? Go ahead. That night came before day. Okay, that's interesting. I want to. Uh, we'll hold on to that. Anybody else say? Uh, yeah. That light was good and darkness was hot. Okay, so there are value judgments here, right? Uh, that's that's important because that indicates the fact that we are looking at a moral text, right? Good and bad are moral categories, and so um, that's a really important point. I'm glad you pointed that out. We will uh, talk about that. Yes. Ah, good. The water is the spirit. The water is the spirit of what? Okay, where did it come from? Okay. Okay. Um, I think that, first of all, it's a, uh, so there, there are two issues here. Yes, Okay, so that's a really radical thing to say. Uh, that something existed before God, but indeed, it's a it's a it's a really good question because you seem to have some things here um, already at the beginning of creation, perhaps even before creation. So that's actually let's just go back there for a second. So what I thought might be surprising to some people in this room is the language, at least of this translation. Because most of us, I would imagine, are accustomed to hearing the opening words of the Bible. I had a, I would, uh, what's that? In the beginning. Right. Most of us are accustomed to hearing, I think, the opening words of the Bible as, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? So I, I just a, an anecdote. I was in college. I was a uh, Hebrew school teacher in Great Neck, New York. And we took a retreat with our Hebrew school kids to like a retreat center in the Catskills, one of the few that still existed. And they had um, one afternoon a quiz show. Um, and uh, one of the questions of the quiz show was not a Jewish themed quiz show. One of the questions of the quiz show was, what are the opening words of the Bible? And me, being a student of conservative Judaism, a, a reader of uh, the uh, um, Jewish 
Publication Society's translation of the Tanakh, which I think is really one of the most excellent translations of the of the Hebrew Bible that's out there, where this translation comes from. Um, I wanted to say when God began, right? But of course, they were looking for in the beginning. Um, it turns out that this translation is probably the most contextually accurate because the opening words of Genesis in the Hebrew, Bereshit bara Elohim, um, are not a definitive declarative statement. First of all, if you're a, he a, a Hebraophile, you'll note that Bereshit is not the same as Bereshit, right? Bereshit is not the or beginning, is a, right? So there's no there's no article V there. That would be ba reshi. But also it is not um, um, reshit is not beginning. It is an action statement. So be reshit is more uh, closely uh, when it began. Reshit bara Elohim is bara is the uh, is the verb there, right? Um, so bereshit bara Elohim when God began and um, so. This is not a radical new idea. If you uh, look at Rashi's commentary to Genesis, uh, um, number um, number three on the on page three, one of my favorite expressions from Rashi. Rashi, by the way, is a eleventh um, century French medieval commentator, um, uh, and he says. This verse cries out, interpret me. I love that, right? Um, it, it, it is begging for interpretation. And he says, it teaches us that the sequence of the creation as written is impossible. If you wish to explain it according to its simple meaning, explain it thus. At the beginning of the creation of heaven and earth, right? Which is basically how JPS translates it, when God began to create the heaven and earth. So, now let's go back to the question that, uh, that, that Gary raised. What happened before God began creating heaven and earth? Well, that actually happens after God begins creating the heaven and earth, or during God's creation of the heaven and earth. Okay, maybe, right? The, 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 yes. Well, I would say more than anything, intentionality. Hmm. Good. That's an interesting point. Right, so intentionality is a something, right? You need a mind for intentionality, right? You need intention for intentionality. So the, the shortest answer that I can give, and I think that we're all kind of hinting at in either our silence or our scrambling, is I don't know. And the text doesn't know and doesn't claim to know. So the text isn't actually saying... Um, how God created the world, they're talking about um, what happened as God was beginning to create the world, right? So you have stuff here that seems to exist at least concurrent with God's creating the world, maybe even that existed before God's creation of the world, right? So when God began to create heaven and earth, the earth being unformed and void with darkness over the surface of the deep and a wind from God sweeping over the water, you have all sorts of stuff there, that it hasn't said God created yet, right? And we don't know where that stuff comes from. It's possible that it's saying that God created that stuff when it says God created the heaven, 
when God began to create the heaven and the earth, but it's also equally possible that it's not what it's saying. Yeah. Maybe he was creating another world. Right, and there are actually uh, midrashim, uh, um, biblical fan fiction, uh, that uh, um, that suggests that uh, God actually created and destroyed many worlds before creating uh, this one. Um, uh, which, uh, if you watch the Matrix trilogy, is a theory that's uh, espoused in the Matrix trilogy about uh, how the machines created many matrices before they created that matrix. Um, but it's also um, potentially. Uh, harmonious with uh, some of the current uh, thinking on the edges of science today that, uh, that there are, are potentially many universes or that uh, there may have been many universes that existed uh, um, into the unknowable past and will uh, continue to exist into the unknowable future. Um, science can only speculate about that because science really can only deal in the observable and quantifiable, um, you know, public repeating phenomena. Right, so um, so whether or not there are many universes, we can't know because we're in this universe in this vantage point. And so that's actually, I think, one of the brilliant pieces of the authors of Genesis. They're actually not speculating about um, about uh, what happened before there was a before. And it's uh, uh, there's another great midrash. So why did the Torah start with a bet? Why did it start with a bet, the Hebrew letter bet instead of the Hebrew letter aleph? It's the shape and it's sort of like what happened before. We're not going to be concerned about but everything from this point on is right. what we want to address. Right, right. Well, Aleph is a silent letter. Mm -hmm. Silence comes before the creation. Good. Okay. Good. Right. So, and and we can really only be silent about what happened before creation. Um, but but I love both of those approaches because basically what it's saying is. Um, what our story is trying to teach us is not necessarily how the world came to be, um, but uh, what we do with the world as it's coming to be. And it goes further than that because it, what that shows you is that uh, the, uh, the point of view of this text is that we live in, in a world that is constantly in the process of coming to be. And that I want to show you uh, what uh, Catherine Keller says, text number one. I love this. Our truth quest, with its critical fidelity to scripture and its engagement of the most trusty knowing we can find about our shared reality, puts its hermeneutics to the test in this reading of Genesis 1. Right? So she's basically saying that my, my book is uh, going to succeed or fail based on my ability to interpret the first chapter of Genesis. For in the primal waters is hidden, like a treasure, a key not just to what we are, but to who we are becoming. Recall that the very word Genesis means literally becoming. So we do not live in a world that was created. We live in, the, in a world that was always in the process of being created and continues to be in the process of being created. We say so in our prayers on a daily basis. We say, uh, we bless God who is mechadesh betuvo bechol yom tamid that God each and every day renews the works of creation in God's goodness. Right? And, that, um, and that as we will see as we move forward, one of the, uh, one of the um, um, roles of humanity in the world, and indeed of all created entities in the world is to further the world's process of becoming. 
that's not just, I think, a, and I think, by the way, that is, um, uh, to, in my view, a good science. Um, because there was a time when the best of our science, and therefore the best of our metaphysics, looked at the world as a dead machine. Right? The world was created, it, was, it is static, right? we have natural law, right? until, basically until Darwin, right? who uh, blew up the idea that we live in a static world and uh, introduced the notion or popularized the notion that we live in, uh, in a constantly evolving world. Right, um, and that is uh, and, and that is true even um, in in regard to physics. Right, uh, um, Einstein um, uh, gave us relativity or showed us relativity. Uh, the fact that we don't live in a in a static reality, we live in a in a constantly shifting reality. Um, uh, and on the uh, frontiers of science today are things like. Um, string theory, which purport that all of creation is at its core vibrating pockets of energy, right? Um, which blows apart, I think, the idea that we are um, uh, static uh, beings in a static world with static matter, right? Uh, matter is actually not static. Matter is actually constantly moving, constantly in motion. So I think that the, uh, I'm not saying necessarily that the authors of Genesis anticipated those scientific advances, but what I am saying is that um, it can, to me, rescue Genesis as a, um, a harmonious text with, uh, with the best of our scientific knowledge without having to uh, bend and twist and say, okay, well, when it says one day it really meant a billion years, and right, um, I don't need to stretch the words of the text in order to do that. The second thing I want to say is that I think that um, there's an ethics to it. So if the world is in the process of becoming, then it means that, um, uh, and, and we have a value claim about that process of becoming, right? God's act of separating light from dark, of forming cosmos out of chaos is good, right? Then we too can know that to aid the world in its, uh, in its process of becoming, to aid the world in its um, expansion of life and consciousness, to uh, aid the to aid our uh, uh, our world in um, its increasing uh, diversity and complexity, um, to in, to uh, to move our world from less life to more life. Those are positive value claims, right? And that I think is built into this text that we are saying that those are good things, and as good things, they are what human beings should be trying to advance. Which and we'll go come back to this, I think, later on when we get to the introduction of human beings, um, it means that uh, we have responsibility to other human beings. Uh, we have responsibility to our own life and our own process of growing. We're not just dead matter that we can um, uh, pump nutrients into and, uh, and, and go on living. We are, we are growing. We are changing beings. But we also have responsibility to um, the diversity and complexity of life on the planet because um, uh, we cannot... Uh, be impediments to a, a world that God is trying to continue luring into becoming. All right. So the what, what's what's I think interesting about this text that we often gloss over, and, and uh, Rabbi Artson in his book um, uh, uh, really makes a compelling argument for this, is that um, Jews especially, but I think lots of religious people have um, ignored the second verse 
of the first chapter of Genesis. We usually skip from when God began to create heaven and earth, or rather, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, um, God said, let there be light, and there was light. But the second verse is really radical. And is not an independent verse, but is part of the uh, an ongoing sentence of those first three verses. It's actually one continuous idea, right? That God's creating uh, heaven and earth um, happened taking unformed and void uh, material, right? So the Hebrew of that is tohu vavohu, um, which uh, which no one really knows what it means, but but I think the best definition of it is chaos, right? Um, uh, total disorder. Um, and luring that disorder into order. Um, which I think, again, if we say, is this text, can we make this text, uh, can we understand this text, rather, in a way that is harmonious with, what, with the best of what we know from, uh, from, from science, um, uh, still the, the most... Uh, um, widely held scientific theory about the origin of the cosmos is the Big Bang, right? And the Big Bang is nothing if not um, unbridled chaos in a way, right? It's a, it's a total eruption, right? So what's amazing about our universe is that it seems, from at least the vantage point of human beings, that um, order and structure in life came from total disorder. Now, you don't have to put a value judgment on that. You don't have to say, okay, well, that that there's a there's a a force in the cosmos that's luring chaos into order. There's a force in the cosmos that's or that's trying to move death or non-existence toward existence or non-living toward living. You don't have to say that, but it sure looks from our vantage point like there is a trajectory of the history of space and time as we know it. And that seems to be what the authors of, uh, of, of Genesis are saying. So the earth being unformed and void with darkness over the surface of the deep, right? Again, where's the deep coming from? We don't know. Um, what I, here, let's look at what, um, um, what Rabbi Artson says in, in uh, text number four, and then in, uh, and then Catherine Keller, text number five. Um, can I actually get somebody to uh, read that so I can my voice of rest for a second? The textual reading of the opening verses of Genesis reveals the recognition that the unformed and void darkness existed when God began creating. That bubbling, irrepressible depth remains the source of self-creativity, potentiality, and resistance to all imposed power. God's creating is not necessarily one of instantiating ex nihilo from without, but rather a process of mobilizing continuous self-creativity from within. So uh, there's a, the, it, it, it may not be a, a self-evident passage. Um, what I understand uh, Artson to be saying here is that, um, is that first, the dominant view of Genesis and of theology is that God created the world ex nihilo, which means from nothing. Right? And I hope that um, at the very least in the course of the past few minutes that we've been talking, um, you see that that's at least only one plausible view of what Genesis is saying and what is possible um, uh, in, in the world. But the other thing that I think he's saying, which I think is uh, profound, is that 
creation happens um, not in spite of chaos, not in spite of the darkness, but because of it. Okay? So, um, so, the, so the, the darkness, the, the chaos, the unformed matter, um, the, the deep, right, is actually the place from which creativity comes. Right? It's not inherently a bad thing, although it can be, we can experience the dark, we can experience the chaotic, we can experience the, the turbulent as painful, um, but many of us also know that sometimes when we are in our darkest moments is when we, um, is when our creativity is most likely to erupt, and we're most open to seeing the possibilities, um, and, uh, and, and we are most yearning and hopeful for a better future. And I think that's, that's exactly what the authors of Genesis are saying here, is that God uses the chaos, uses the darkness, to bring out novelty, to bring out creativity, to bring out complexity, to bring out light. And to me, that is a, um, uh, a value statement as well, um, a guide for uh, uh, what it means to live in a world in which there is still um, unformed and void and deep. Right? We, we still live in this universe. We still live in a universe that's not uh, completely um, uh, cosmos. We still live in a universe that has chaos. We still live in a universe where there's pain and tragedy and suffering, right? And uh, it's not necessarily saying there is such a thing as a perfected universe, although there may be a, a trajectory toward improvement, toward um, uh, uh, repair, um, toward wholeness. Um, but it's also saying that within the reality in which we have, we can look at the darkness, we can look at the deep as, um, as either um, a, an oppressive force that crushes us or um, as the place from which novelty can be birthed. And that's in a choice that we have. But God's response to it is to flutter over the surface of the deep, right? to be touching it, to be bringing out from it. Right? Um, and from being close to the deep, from being close to the darkness, that's where God says, let there be light. And there was light. Right? That's, it has to be that place. God can't create light unless there's darkness that God is touching. Right? And that's true for us, too, in a way. We can't create light unless we encounter and experience the darkness. That doesn't mean, now you see, it says, God called light good and dark bad. That doesn't mean that the dark is good. I'm not saying that bad things that happen to people in the world or, or uh, bad things that happen in the world are good, but they can be um, uh, uh, places of, of novelty and creativity and urges toward more life and more justice and more love. Yeah. It doesn't explicitly claim that the total revolt is Right, right. It does not say the Tov of Ovu is bad. All it says is that uh, um, uh, the light was good. Exactly. Yes, thank you for clarifying that. Um, sorry if I was misleading in what I said about it, but that's really important, right? It doesn't say that it's bad. It just says that light is good. So we know what we should be moving toward. We know what we should be bringing into the world. Oh, thank you. Uh, we know what we should be bringing into the world. Um, but whether we experience the darkness as bad is actually, um, uh, in some way, in some way, a choice that we have. 
That doesn't mean that bad things that happen aren't bad, um, but we also have a choice of how we experience those things and what we do with them. Okay. Now God says in verse, let's move on to verse 6. So God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water that it may separate water from water. God made the expanse and it separated the water which was below the expanse from the water which was above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky and there was evening and there was morning a second day. What's, what I think is amazing about the trajectory of this text is that, um, um, as was mentioned before, uh, life emerges from water. Right? The water is actually the building block of, uh, of, of our world. Um, there's not, necess- there's not a, uh, it says when God began to create the heaven and the earth, but actually we don't really get to the earth until much later. Right? We have light and we have water. Right? Um, and in fact, um, on a certain level, that's the building block of all life, right? We are, I love this phrase, so I'm going to use it. Rabbi Artson, uh, in one of his books, I think in this book, um, maybe it was in his doctoral dissertation that I read, calls human beings little bags of ocean powered by lightning, <laughs> right? Which is what we are, right? We are, we're 75, 70% water, right? Um, our, our blood is mainly composed of the same saline solution as is in the ocean, right? And the way we spark into life or the way our, our, our uh, life sparks into life is probably um, uh, lightning, uh, heating and animating um, organic compounds, right? We are bags of ocean powered by lightning. And so what, uh, what, what this text is, uh, is, is telling us is that, um, is that all life actually comes from that place. All the world actually comes from that place. So that's actually a really important piece of science that, um, that I think the Torah calls into our consciousness as a piece of morality, um, as, a piece, as a way of looking at the world. Um, Carl Sagan, when he did the original Cosmos series, um, popularized this idea. Um, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, who just did the newer Cosmos series, um, also uh, echoed it. Um, the idea that um, we are all made of stars, right? The same particles that were flung out at the beginning of the Big Bang are the ones that make up our all of our cells, all of our uh, all of our world, all of our universe, right? So we're all made of that, not only the Big Bang, but also of exploding stars after, right? We are all of that material, and that material um, uh, um, becomes the molecules that make up the uh, oceans that end up giving life to us, right? So um, there was a great, if it, did any of you watch this most recent uh, Cosmos series? One of the episodes, uh, Tyson uh, shows the commonalities of our uh, DNA, not only with um, chimpanzees and, and other primates, but then compares it to trees. Right? And it's amazing how much um, uh, structure of our DNA is shared with all life on Earth. In, the large, in, in a real way, we are cousins with every other living thing on the planet, and in a certain way, with anything that we consider non-living on the planet as well. Right? We share 
those molecules. We share those atoms. We share that DNA. And in a way, we share that energy too. So, um, so this is actually bringing that uh, to the forefront of, of our consciousness, that we are actually um, in a, uh, a, a, a real intimate connection with all of the rest of creation, living and non-living. Right? So that, I think, has moral implications too. How would you relate to a world in which the trees are our cousins and the ocean is our mother? Right? How do you relate to that world? It's different than if you think that the ocean is just a dead thing that you can swim in. Right? It's really different. And um, uh, it's, it's the quote that I brought from Art Green. Um, yeah, sure, th this helps. Okay, so look at uh, text number 10. Can someone read uh, um, what uh, um, Rabbi Arthur Green says in text 10? that saying? Go ahead. The universe that all creation is a sun adds up to God. That's right. right. Um, it's not that God created the world. Right? It's that God is the world. Right? And so in a certain sense, all of us share in a oneness of all creation. Um, which means that we are all interconnected on so many levels. Everybody in this room is interconnected on so many levels, but it goes, of course, deeper than that. We may be connected more closely with our family members and then maybe more closely with other Jews, and, but in reality, we are interconnected and interwoven with all other peoples and all the rest of life. And if you think about that in theological terms, um, you really get a sense of what we're saying when we say Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Right? It's not a, a mathematical statement. Um, you know, how many gods can you count? Well, I count one. Well, I count three. Okay, well, you're out and you're in. It's not what it's saying. It's saying that God is oneness. Right? That we all make up a universe which is God becoming life. Which is God becoming, God emanating into itself. So, um, uh, I think about that whenever I say the Shema, and I think that there are profound moral dimensions to that as well, because if we um, are all um, a, a part of an interconnected whole, then I think we would relate to each other differently if we really saw that in each other than when we see the radical divisions and distinctions um, that we often put up between us. But not that those divisions and distinctions aren't real in their own sense, um, in some senses they are, and in some senses they're important. I don't necessarily uh, uh, endorse John Lennon's world. Uh, but um, uh, it does mean that in a, uh, in, in, a, in a bigger sense, in a metaphysical sense, those distinctions are actually kind of arbitrary and somewhat imagined. Not, sorry, forgive the pun about imagined, but you get the word. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm going to kind of blow through some of the uh, uh, next passages of, uh, of the text, just as uh, just we see them. God said, let the water below the sky be gathered into one area that the dry land may appear, and it was so. 
God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of waters uh, he called seas. And God saw that this was good. Again, we have another moral statement, right? This was good. Um, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, seed-bearing plants, fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Okay, that is, we'll come back to that. Let me just finish the passage, right? The earth brought forth vegetation, seed-bearing plants of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that this was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. So anybody have uh, a, an intuition about why I, I paused at that statement, the earth brought forth vegetation? Sustains. Okay, it sustains us. Good. What else do you notice about that? Different than maybe some of the other passages we saw before. God didn't directly make the vegetation. That's right. He, she or he created the earth brought forth the vegetation. That's right. We live in a self-creating world, right? Um, so that means that built into the structure of the world is um, is is the propensity to 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 move toward light, to become more light, right? And that's not just a throwaway line. I think that that is crucial to the whole enterprise, right? We don't live in a world in which God created it once and then it just was, right? We live in a world in which it is constantly self-creating, right? And there's a value judgment to that. That is good, right? It is good that the earth brings forth vegetation, right? It is, you'll see again, right? It is, in, in, in the passages coming up, it is good that the, um, that the uh, living things that are, that are on the planet uh, reproduce and bring out more life. And it, what we, if we, uh, and it, what we know from Darwin is that not only do we bring out more life, but we bring out more diversity, right? I think that that's built into this too. That is good, right? So if it's a positive good for the earth to regenerate, for the earth to bring out more life, if what we're saying is that that more life and self-creation is a good thing, then that has implications for our morality as well. Okay. Um, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night. They shall serve as signs for the set times, the days, and the years. And they shall serve as lights in the expanse of the sky to shine upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to dominate the day and the lesser light to dominate the night and the stars. Okay, so we, we those of us who, uh, who, who uh, um, took um, uh, college astrophysics class know that this can't be true. Maybe Rashi's right that the order was just reversed for whatever reasons, and that they really meant that the stars came first. And of course, you have the issue of well, what produced the light if you didn't have light-producing things, which don't come until uh, the fourth day, but in any event, here you have it. Um, uh, the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the sky to shine upon the earth, to dominate the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that this was good. Again, the separation of light from darkness is a positive good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. That is, a, I think, a, a wonderfully um, anachronistic, biologically astute statement. Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. How did they know that? It's amazing, I think. And birds that fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky, of course, that sort of undercuts the uh, scientific you know, sensitivity of this. You know, the water brought forth the, uh, the, um, the, the some animals, but then there happened to be birds. Um, 
God created the great sea monsters and all the living creatures of every kind that creep. Um, the great sea monsters is maybe a whole other class um, that uh, you have lingering pieces of other Near Eastern mythology in our Bible. Um, our Bible is actually, I think, trying to argue against those mythologies, but it needs to do so in a way that gives uh, um, some kind of acknowledgement to them because you can't create a book that's too out there and too radical. People will read this book and say, okay, this is a great story of the creation of the world, but where are the sea monsters, right? Um, just like, like I, can't make, I can't make a Superman movie unless there's a red cape and red underwear, right? I could make whatever movie I wanted to about Superman, but if I didn't have a red cape, people would be like, okay, well, this isn't really a Superman movie, right? So the, you have the same thing here in uh, uh, biblical literature. They have to give nods to the other uh, uh, texts that they're trying to be in the genre of, but, uh, but they want to say something different about that genre. So that may be another class, but uh, there's the sea monsters. Um, we still have one in Scotland somewhere, um, with, with which the waters brought forth in swarms and all the winged birds of every kind, and God saw that this was good. Again, um, self-creation, dynamism, and uh, um, diversity, God sees as a good thing. Right? God sees life and diversity of life as a good thing. Which means the next time you uh, buy elephant ivory, you should know that you're committing something, you're doing something against the Torah because you are contributing to uh, diminishment of diversity on the planet. Just to use that one example. No one here buys elephant ivory, I'm sure, but just, uh, just so you know. Okay. Um, this is amazing. Look at this, verse 22. God blessed them, the animals, saying, Be fertile and increase. Fill the waters and the sea, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Now for those of you who are following along at home, you may have heard that passage before, be fertile and increase. Anybody hear that before? Yeah. <laughs> Where have you heard that? Be fruitful and multiply. Who have you heard that in reference to? Adam and Eve, people, right? People, of course, are, be, are told, we will see, it's true, are told to be fruitful and multiply, but it's uh, amazing to note that the first commandment um, to living things in the Torah is not to human beings, but to other animals, be fertile and increase, which is the same commandment, of course, that we get. That, I think, is, is pretty radical, and it, uh, and it shows you that this idea that religious people um, would reject the close connection of uh, humanity to the rest of the animal kingdom, I think, would have been a, a, a um, foreign to the authors of Genesis. Right? The same way God wants uh, human beings to be fertile increases the exact same thing God says to the other animals. Um, David, would you mind trying to hit the, uh, um, if we can get a little bit more air in here? No, we can't? I think it's not, yeah. Um, I'm a little yeah, bit. Now everybody knows. <laughs> um, okay. And God said, "Let the earth bring forth every kind of living creature." Right again. Um, this is not God creating. This is the earth creating itself. God is. This is an important process theology word. God is luring creation into being. God isn't forcing creation to happen. God is saying. You should go forth and do this. 
right? And it does it itself. So the earth bring forth every kind of living creature, cattle, creeping things, and wild beasts of every kind, and it was so. God made wild beasts of every kind and cattle of every kind and all kinds of creeping things on the earth. And God saw that this was good. Again, a moral statement. And God said, here we go. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. They shall rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the cattle, the whole earth, and all the creeping things that creep on the earth. And, okay, let's just pause there for a second. Who is God talking to here? When God says, let us make man in our image, who is the us? Say that again. Okay, well, wait, well, him. Right, so then if that's the case, why is it plural? So, right. So, all right, so that's a, that's a good guess. Um, it also turns out to not be true. There is no, there was no royal we in the biblical Hebrew. Um, and uh, um, that has been a, 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 a suggestion that's been proposed. Um, it, it's, it, if it were true, you would see it in so many other places in the Bible. You never see uh, God talking like this in the Bible. Um, it could be. Okay, so hold that thought for a second. It could be other gods, right? So the word that's used for God here, unlike many other places in the Bible where we have God's proper name, Yud Hey Vav Hey, here is Elohim. And uh, those of you who know Hebrew um, are probably can point out the fact that Elohim seems to be a plural word. Um, and uh, this could also be a nod to um, other Near Eastern mythologies uh, that have multiple gods. It could be. Um, but I think, right, I think that the, uh, the and if you're, if, if some Christian theologists say, well, God's talking to the Trinity. Um, uh, um, some Midrashim say that God is talking to the angels. I think if we're just looking at the text, it seems to me God is talking to the animals. And what it means then to be human is that we are fashioned in the image of both animals and God. And that means that the, that the distinction that was made in the time of Darwin between people saying God made humans little lower than the angels and Darwin, Darwinian saying, well, we're just a little bit above apes, is actually both true. Right? We are simultaneously part of the animal kingdom and also fashioned in the image of God. And I think that that's the, the basic meaning here. Uh, but this, I think, is the crux, the point of this whole text. Because if we are fashioned in the image of God, and it says God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, what have we learned about God from the first 27 verses, 26 verses of the book of Genesis up until now? What does it mean to be fashioned in the image of God? Okay. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean? Our spirit uh, is trying to elevate itself back to that state which God made us in the beginning. Okay, good. What else? It means that we are creative and we can, we can be stewards of the earth. We can help the earth. Debbie, I think that you're exactly right. I think that uh, that that if we're, if this text 
is saying that God's role in the world is to lure unformed and void, to lure chaos into order, to lure life from no life, to lure diversity and complexity from simplicity, to, uh, to bring forth a world and to sustain a world in which all life is connected and related to all life, and we are created in the image of an entity that does that, then that means what is essential to who we are is to be like God in all of those ways. And that has moral implications and moral ramifications. So when you see this next verse that says, be fertile and increase, which again, he said to the animals too, fill the earth and master it, Mastery there, I think, has historically been misread. Right? We, we've read that as, do whatever you want with the planet. And I don't think that that's what it's saying. A ruler who masters their subjects in that way is a despot. But I think mastery here is enabling the world to do what God wants it to do because we are, after all, created in God's image. And that's, I love this passage from uh, Catherine Keller here, number nine. How could dominion, in the context of Genesis 1, mean anything but to call this gifted and aggressive earthling to responsibility? Right? It's not about power. It's about responsibility. Power is a given, but it's about responsibility. Does not our right of dominion mean precisely responsible caretaking? The Genesis is leading toward the creation of human beings not as the pinnacle of creation for the sake of our power over creation, but of being God's responsible stewards of creation here on earth. That's, I think, the role of humanity here. And it goes even deeper than that when we talk about power dynamics, because in this telling of the creation of humanity, male and female, he created them. The idea that women came after men and are in some way subjugated by or dominated by uh, men, which is what seems to be the case in uh, Genesis 2, is a different telling of the creation of human beings. And I, this is not a radical statement by, by Knopf. Like, uh, even Orthodox rabbis note the uh, distinction between what happens in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There's a famous book by Joseph Soloveitchik, who was the dean of American orthodoxy in the last century. Um, he wrote a great book um, called The Lonely Man of Faith and suggested that the two tellings of the creation of human beings in uh, the uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis um, talk about different uh, sides of human, of human personalities. Right? So he wasn't going so far as to say that they are really radically different uh, approaches to what it means to be human. Um, uh, but he does at least acknowledge that these seem to be two different stories. Yeah. Just to go back talking about being made in God's image with the colonies of George Burns, how much do you think that statement is an attempt to anthropomorphize God? Because there, I'm certainly not a literate guy to the extent that you are, but there, there's a really good book called The History of God by Karen Armstrong. And she talks about how through history, God has been anthropomorphized, and that's sort of been a trend. So, do you think that that was intentionally a 
a goal because people needed something that they could understand in the physical sense um, in, in terms of creation? Um, yeah, I think that, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. Um, I think that, that there's there's a, a lot behind that, uh, that that approach. I mean, I think, I, you know, I would, I might explain it as, as somewhat not so conscious, right? I think that uh, you know, sort of Einsteinian, we can really only understand things from our vantage point, from the vantage point of our own biology. Um, so it turns out that um, to describe God in non-human terms is in some way to make God less than human in, in some way, right? And we definitely don't want to say that about God. Um, so the best we can come up with is that God is sort of like superhuman, right? So like a human being in a lot of ways, but other than. Um, and, uh, and that, that's sort of the approach that, uh, that Judaism took, um, to talk about God in human language, but to also say that, um, it, we're limited by our biology and by our consciousness and our ability to describe God. But you know, it also describes God, and Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, so the, the short answer I can give to that is um, I'm not convinced, um, and in fact, the, the passage that you're describing or some of the passages that you're describing um, are likely different authors. Um, there's the, uh, the, the common theory in biblical research is that, um, um, uh, of course, God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai, but it's also potentially true that multiple people uh, contributed to the writing of the book that we now call the Torah. Um, and so um, uh, it seems like there are probably different authors that wrote the first chapter of Genesis than wrote, say, the second paragraph of the Shema, um, which describes, you know, uh, don't fulfill the commandments, then the rain's not going to fall, etc. Um, but at a different level, we can actually understand the second paragraph of the Shema through the lens of the opening chapter of Genesis. Because what it means is, if you don't act through uh, the, the, um, through the uh, avenue of godly responsibility that we have, actually we will destroy the natural world in all of those ways. So if you don't live certain ways, if you don't uphold the, 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 the basic tenets of uh, Jewish morality, not only in our relation to other human beings, but also in relation to the planet, yeah, you will uh, get the plant into such a way that the rain won't fall in its season, and right, it's 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 collective more than individual. But there's there's truth to it as we're discovering uh, now, um, and hopefully our our winter this coming year will be a little bit better. All right, so let's um uh, let's just finish um uh, the opening chapter just so we just so we've seen them. We'll conclude for the for the night, um, and I'm happy, of course, to continue the conversation with anybody who wants. But I also want to make sure to get people home on time. So God said. See, I give you every seed-bearing plant that is upon all the earth, talking to human beings. I give you every seed-bearing plant that is upon the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, they shall be yours for food. And to all the animals on land, and to all the birds of the sky, and to everything that creeps on earth, in which there is to be the breath of life, I give all the green plants for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made and found it very good. Right? That's a difference, right? We had good before it, now it's very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So 
it will probably take too much time to speculate on what very good means in relation to everything that exists that, that, that was good. But certainly it has to mean that the role of human beings on Earth, which is the major difference between days five and day six, is a piece of that. Right? And, and, but only insofar as we do what God is um, hoping that human beings do, which is um, um, sustain and care for the creation that God has started to bring into being, right? In a lot of ways, the rest is up to us. And notice what God gives us to eat, right? In this passage, at least, later we're given permission to eat meat, but in this passage, at least, we're only allowed to eat vegetables. We're only allowed to eat uh, vegetation. Um, that, I think, is important. Right? We know um, uh, now uh, the... The, the un, in unsustainability of the way um, human beings consume meat. We also know of the real moral challenges of eating meat, not that inherently eating meat is immoral, um, but treating life as if it were never life is, I think, from the point of view of the first chapter of Genesis, not what we're called to do. So treating meat as if it's just, you know, it was, it was created as a, uh, uh, came on um, a styrofoam and wrapped in cellophane, uh, and that's, what are you talking about? That's where it comes from. It comes from the grocery store shelf, right? That's actually not what Genesis is saying, right? We know where it comes from. Um, and, that's, and that's precisely why I think, um, you know, Tor could have said anything. I'm sure the, the, the authors of Genesis liked eating meat, right? Uh, but it goes out of its way to say, because I mean, the authors of Genesis were priests, so they sacrificed animals in the temple, right? So, but they go out of their way to say, at least here, our initial state is to eat only vegetables, and I think there's good reason for that. And then finally, the heaven and earth were finished in all their array. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because on it, God ceased from all the work of creation that he had done. Um, so, of course, that is the origin of what we call Shabbat. Um, but I think that there's a, 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 a deep message and ethic to that, too. So, first of all, it means that the pinnacle of creation is not humanity, but Shabbat. And it's Shabbat because um, Shabbat, uh, if humanity masters creation, tries to control creation, tries to work creation, Shabbat says on a certain level, Creation exists for creation's sake and not for humanity's sake. More than that, Shabbat is an opportunity to step away and to say that, um, and to say that the, the world um, uh, um, uh, doesn't need constant tinkering. The world uh, um, has its own rhythm and its own life and requires its own rest as well. Um, and the, 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 the final thing is that um, uh, uh, Shabbat is an opportunity to step back from the act of creation, which humans are now supposed to be a part of, and to say, wait a minute, to go back to the time before God began to create and say, wait a minute, what is it that we really want to build here? What is it that we're really striving toward? And if we constantly are engaged in the creative act and the creative process, we can't ever get that vantage point of 
where do we need to be going and what are we trying to build? And I think if, uh, just to end with, uh, with, with a teaching of my uh, teacher, Rabbi Sharon Browse, um, that Shabbat is an opportunity to dream of the world that we're supposed to be building together. Um, and indeed, I think that the text of Genesis is talking about a world that we, in partnership with God, are working to build, a world in which um, order is born out of chaos, in which creativity comes from darkness, um, in which uh, light is separated from, uh, from dark, and in which um, light and complexity and diversity um, erupts and is called to continue erupting and uh, that we are called to sustain. Thank you very much.